Welcome to Data for Future, a podcast where data meets sustainability. Today's episode has made me think a lot about my work and how it impacts the society on a bigger scale. And I think it's of high importance for anyone who is employed in tech, especially when this number of people who are employed in tech, for instance, software developers, was estimated at 27 million in 2020 which is a very small fraction of the global population, around 0.3%. And I think it's easy to argue that these people have an immense impact on our lives, our day-to-day lives, our societies, around the globe, in all the countries. So we have a very big responsibility that we have to assume and work with other people to make sure that our tech is ethical and respectful to the society that we live in. And so thankfully there are foundations and initiatives like Etikas Consulting, which is our guest today, that helps companies to do exactly that. But before we jump into that, I'd like to make a very quick announcement. Data for Future has been here for over a year and we are deeply inspired by our community, our speakers, our listeners, and would like to extend this impact and scale the project. So right now we're opening three positions, three volunteer positions to join our team, to involve more talent, and we offer you a stage to showcase and enhance your skills, amplify your portfolio, and also get mentored in data science or in other fields related to podcast production. So right now we're looking for social media manager, an audio editor, and a web optimization or SEO specialist. Those three positions. If you have some experience in those. If you feel like you want to learn with us, grow with us, please reach out on our website, dataforfuture.org. You can find a section called join our team. And yeah, just send us a message and let's speak. And having said that, let's jump right into our episode. Enjoy. So hello, everyone, and welcome back to Data for Future. Happy to happy to have you here. Today, our stage is welcoming Gemma Galdon. I hope I pronounce your name correctly. Perfectly. Who is the CEO? Who is the CEO of Eticus Consulting, which is a company that identifies black box algorithmic vulnerabilities and retrains AI-powered system under their unique methodology. They will talk about soon to make them more ethical. And I'm very excited and. Very curious about how it works, so we'll have hopefully a very interesting discussion today. And welcome to our stage, Gemma. It's nice to have you here. Thank you so much. So why don't we start by first introducing uh, Tikas Consulting. I'm not sure if probably you want to add many things <laughs> uh, to, to my introduction that I did right now. Okay, so we're actually a foundation. We're a, we're a foundation with a consultancy. So uh, a okay. lot of a lot of organizations are consultancies with foundation. We're the other way around. Um, our mission as an organization is to protect people in technological processes, uh, and that's what we address through different initiatives. And one of those initiatives is Ethicus Consulting, which is a consultancy that caters specifically to the needs of industry to understand the challenges of AI and specifically ethics um, in AI and how to fulfill our mission, which is to protect people in technological processes. Basically what I've experienced in my in my life working at this um, 
space of interaction between technology and and society is that there's a lot of people who are suffering because of badly designed technology and engineers are not always equipped to understand the world that they have to code. Um, and so we want to help them do this better. Uh, so we have a multidisciplinary team that works on the social and the technical. And what we do is innovate on ways to address societal issues through technology. Okay, amazing. And how do you identify those algorithmic vulnerabilities, those issues? Can you provide us with some examples? Well, some of them are very obvious. Like if you understand mm -hmm. a little bit how um, artificial intelligence works and how algorithms and machine learning works, you know that um, basically it captures data from the past to yeah. try to make um, good guesses on the future, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, which some people call prediction. That's not actually predict. You're just basically seeing what's what happened in the past and making an assumption on what may happen in the future based on probability, basically. But then if you take data from the past, that means that a lot of things that have happened in our societies get translated into that data. So one very obvious thing, women are routinely discriminated against in AI systems because we are often underrepresented in, in the historical data. Just because in the past we were restricted to our homes, we didn't have an economic life, Uh, we didn't have much of a life outside of the domestic arena. And therefore, in many databases that span over 30 or 40 years or sometimes less than that, we're underrepresented. So if you just feed that data into an algorithm, women will continue to be uh, underrepresented and discriminated against because the algorithm understands that what happened in the past is what needs to happen in the future. So that's one of like the most obvious things. But in the same way that we see this kind of discrimination, we see a lot of layers of discrimination in any coded system, in any algorithmic or AI system, there's a lot of inefficiencies that are built into the data at different moments. So our role is to identify those moments of potential discrimination or inefficiency and fix them. I mean, the good news is that all these things can be fixed. We can protect women in AI systems. We can ensure that AI systems are fair to women, uh, non-white people, um, people with, uh, with uh, neurodiverse um, capacities. We can make sure that we build all that into our systems, but unfortunately engineers are not equipped to do that. So they need to surround themselves by other profiles, which is what we, what we contribute to those um, innovation spaces. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you are absolutely right in terms of how AI algorithms work. So we make prediction based on history, and assume that history will continue as it is. And yeah, I agree, there are lots of issues. One of them is uh, gender, another one is racial underrepresentation. And uh, me as a data analyst, I'm aware of those issues quite well. <laughs> I don't work with them directly, but yeah, totally true. And so, on the other hand, if we move into... Like we've talked about the about the problem right now, how would you visualize the the perfect ethical AI system, so to say? Well, I think the first thing we need to understand is that data reflects society, and therefore, to make the best use of data, you need to understand society. So, engineers or data scientists alone are not equipped to incorporate all the challenges that we have to make the most of that data. So I think that we've made a mistake by, by approaching AI as a technical issue. It's not a technical issue. It's a social technical issue. And the way to make the most of our current innovation capabilities is to incorporate 
both profiles and to make sure that we learn from one another. It's like if you're trying to build a building, you're not just going to have an electrician. You need different kinds of people with different expertise because to build a building, you need a lot of different capabilities. It's the same thing with AI. We are, we are building very complex systems that incorporate a lot of dynamics from lots of different domains. So if you only have electricians, then I'm sorry, but you cannot build a good building. You cannot build a building that will stand an earthquake or even uh, the first um, strong rain. And I think that's what's happening. And that's why in our experience, when our clients come to us to help them audit the algorithms, what we find are really bad quality algorithms because they just look like buildings built by electricians. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, it, it's, not, it's not enough. It's not good enough. But also some of the mistakes that we, that we find are often very easy to solve. It's just that you didn't have the people to make sure that you build this um, with all the skills that you needed from the, from the word go. You don't, you don't really understand the problem that you're trying to solve. You haven't even, oftentimes no one's really defined what problem you want to solve. Um, a lot of times for engineers and technical people, and also for many CEOs at corporations, they just want technology because it exists, not because they have an identified problem that they want to solve. It's just, oh, everyone's using AI, everyone's using blockchain, let's use it. And when you ask them, what's your problem? What do you need it for? They don't know. It's like everyone else is doing it, so let's do it. That's a really bad way of addressing technology and what innovation can bring to our organizations. Hmm. Yeah, 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 definitely. And I mean, I totally agree. It's also about the, it's also about the making the team diverse. Many people talk about this, especially in the tech companies right now, that the more diverse your team is, the more robust your solutions are as well, which helps the business, but also helps, I think, bigger society in, in a bigger, larger you know, terms. Well, I think that with a diverse team, at least some very obvious things wouldn't, would not happen. Like I remember mm -hmm. a few months ago, the Met Museum launched this app that had pr processed all the faces of everyone that they have at the museum in the paintings in the museum mm -hmm. and you could play and upload uh, upload your picture and and see your picture your face be turned into a painting i mean that sounds really fun and and like you know harmless but then okay. someone uploaded a picture of obama and what the app returned was a white obama because <laughs> <laughs> of course in the in the paintings at the met museum Culturally, it is the white race that has tended to paint its members. Um, yeah, yeah. So, of course, for the algorithm, a white person is the normal and a black person doesn't really exist in, mm. its, in its training data. And so Obama was turned, was turned uh, white. I'm sure <laughs> they had had a, a black person in that team when mm. doing, you know, the initial tests, they would yeah. have realized. So even at that, like, very, you know, non-structured um, approach, having a diverse team is useful because you're asking questions that, a, mm -hmm. that a, a team that is only male and only white and only highly educated will never ask because it doesn't apply to them. So things like mm. this can easily be avo uh, avoided with diverse teams. But I think that the, it doesn't stop at diversity yeah. in teams. I think that we need processes that incorporate uh, the different knowledges at different stages of the of the um, conceptualization and creation of innovation and and innovation inno innovative technologies. You mean like some some innovation standards? How and and, and procedures. So when when uh -huh. does the ethicist come in play? When does the social scientist come in play? When do UX people come in play? You know, I think uh -huh. that all the non technical aspects of technology have been 
uh, underestimated for a long, long time. And that's meant that a lot of technology that has a lot of potential is failing because we didn't take into account the users. We didn't take into account the social aspects of the data. There's so many things that we haven't taken into account that I think we run the risk of kind of killing uh, this amazing space. Like I'm, I'm a, a true believer in the in the potential of AI to help us in a lot of um, a lot of our work, uh, the functions. I think that the 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 interaction between the between between humans and technology has amazing promise. But if we keep on doing technology in such a sloppy way, mm-hmm. people will stop trusting technology, and so mm. people will just when they see an AI system, they'll be like, you know, last time I used an AI system, it discriminated against my wife or it discriminated against me, uh, mm-hmm. or I saw that my data was not being respected, or I didn't understand how it worked, so I didn't use it. So I think we're eroding the trust of the population, and that is really dangerous for innovation. We may kill innovation because we need people to trust it for, for yeah. it to thrive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, absolutely. And also, uh, coming back to, to the Obama's example, I wonder what happened if, if it would be, I don't know, Oprah Winfrey or... Or some black woman. This would be. Oh, so <laughs> would someone be even tried this. Someone oh, really? tried this, and that was very interesting because um, Oprah she continued to be black, <laughs> but she okay. was made young because in paintings there oh. are white women, but they're always slaves or serving the master. So she was she was she was white and a little bit, but not too much. So you could still see that she was not white, but she was made young because that's the normal. So it's it's it is about the it is about the training data, but it's also about the algorithmic models. Um, mm-hmm. For many engineers, algorithms always look for what's most common, and they try to reproduce what is most common. And again, that's that's a, a very basic misunderstanding of how society functions and what we want to protect in society. The fact that you are different doesn't make you less interesting, less desirable as a customer. Uh, but for some reason, engineers tend to understand that if you're not the norm, then mm-hmm. you should be punished in algorithmic systems. So it's not only about the training data, but it's about it's also about the the algorithmic modeling and the things mm-hmm. that we are we are optimizing for in those in those systems. So I don't want to blame it all on past data because there's also active decisions that are being made by engineers that mm-hmm. just reintroduce and make space for further discrimination. So in our algorithmic audit, for instance, we've identified eight moments of potential bias in the in the algorithmic life cycle from okay. the moment that it is uh, conceptualized until the moment that it's incorporated into a decision-making process. And there's humans that, 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 play, that play a role. There's lots of different moments. It's not only about the training data. So if we solve the training data, we continue, we keep on having other problems. So that's okay. why I'm saying that I think that ethics needs to be incorporated Mm-hmm. in the in the design process from the beginning to the end till the end because there's lots of moments when things can go wrong hmm. yeah i would really like to to introduce those eight steps or maybe not all of them but some most essential ones but before we go into that like the first thing that i thought when you know when researching a bit about about ethics about what you do i see a very it's i see it very difficult to to make something that technical to turn it like to play with something so technical in social terms. So, for example, how do you how, how do you assess what is good or bad? Because I mean, ethics is always about some cultural norms, right? How can you treat it objectively in in, in a system like you know in, in something related to data? Well, basically, it's, we don't talk about objectivity. We talk about robustness <laughs> okay. and whether and whether things are are academically sound. 
So we never um, identify a group as vulnerable because that's our experience. Because my cousin, <laughs> that's uh, that's anecdote. That's not science. So when we have a lot of a, a lot of social sciences that tell us about how the world works, that tell mm-hmm. us about the dynamics of discrimination in different countries. For us, it's not the same to audit a system in the U.S., in Latin America, or in Europe, or in Asia. Because the, okay. the dynamics of discrimination and the issues that can come in the data hmm. can be very different. So we, hmm. we use different literature and we always base our decisions on that. And we always justify our decisions. And that's a big difference between what we do and what engineers do. We write down, we document how we mm-hmm. do things. So that even if we make a mistake, we can, we, can, we can explain why we made that mistake. Like with the data that we had at that moment, that was the best decision we could make. With the technology we had at the moment, that was the best we could mitigate or anonymize the data. Maybe um, five years later, that has changed, and then we, we need to revisit that. But because we document, we can always explain why we made a decision, and we can justify why that felt like the best decision to make at the time. So I don't think that the social sciences are less objective than uh, than data. Um, I think we have we have very serious misunderstandings about what social sciences is mm-hmm. and what what data science is. I mean, at the end of the day, as someone said, if you torture data enough, it will tell you whatever you want to hear. Um, so it's, you know, the same with social sciences. You have your references, you use them, but you can, and you can be honest when you do that and you can justify when you make some certain choices or you can not, not do that. Uh, so there's bad science everywhere. So at the mm-hmm. end of the day, I think that we, we're all being socio-technical. I think that engineers need to understand a lot more about the the the, the less um, um, objective aspects of their discipline, and I think that mm-hmm. social scientists need to understand that. Oftentimes, what we do is 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 very much um, one, two, three. You know, um, I often talk about lawyers as mathematicians. I mean, hmm. a lawyer just Im- applies a law. So it's like you know, if I have this uh, this law that says this and this case that said that, then A plus B equals C. That's, mm-hmm. that's basically what they do. There's not a lot of room to maneuver and interpret. You have that in constitutional courts. But usually at the lower level, it's basically math. Mm-hmm. So again, I think we have a lot of misconceptions about, mm-hmm. about the different disciplines and, and how technical or non-technical they are. Okay. So as a, if, if I understood correctly, it was it's not about good or bad in, in those terms. It's rather about vulnerabilities, right? Exactly. That, that di- differs between cultures, across countries, across... Yeah, mm. and it's it's about impacts. So what what we do is mm-hmm. we try to assess, do an early assessment of potential impacts, and that impact can be on discrimination, can be on the environment, can be on organizational processes. Don't forget that AI in a company changes the way that people work. So that is that is that is also an important an important part of what we what we do. So I think it's it's broadly about about impact and identifying those impacts. And of course, there's impacts that we may not be able to see now, but that's why an algorithmic audit is something that you do every year. Because there may be new things uh, emerging that you need to incorporate and you need to protect your data better because maybe your threat model changes. Like, you know, if you talk about uh, technical terms, threat modeling, for me, it's such a creative process. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's not it's not technical at all in that in that sense. For me, it's very much a creative process in which you need to assess different different things and different people can come up with different threat models for the same, uh, the exact same system. So again, I think there's a lot less objectivity uh, that we think in in, in technical in technical um, disciplines. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. So, shall we start with <laughs> with those eight steps? 
what are those eight steps to unbias an algorithm to make it more right ethical? so maybe i can make it easier uh, and talk about three phases maybe okay. that incorporate those uh, those eight steps so Sounds in the good. first phase we look at how a problem has been con um, um kind of narrowed down to data points so when mm -hmm. you have a client or someone that's like, I, I want to incorporate an algorithm or AI in the system, it's because they usually have a problem or a process that is not working well enough. And so they want to incorporate some degree of automation. So we start looking at how that problem that they had initially has been translated into data inputs. And again, mm -hmm. that's not a technical process. You are making choices there. And yeah, we see a lot of issues in, in this step. The most the most severe we found is a case that was published a couple of years ago uh, that was audited by some by some colleagues in the US. It was an, an algorithm used to prioritize people in the emergency room in hospitals. Um, and what they realized when they audited it is that the algorithm had been trained on financial data, not medical data. Hmm. And so the decisions as to who, who needed to be um, attended to uh, first was made on the basis of whether your disease costed a lot of money in the past or it didn't cost much money in the past, which is a, uh -huh. it's a very amedical way of doing things. Like if you have a heart attack, it's it may be very cheap to bring mm -hmm. you back to life, but if you mm. if you don't get care immediately, you die. So it's obviously not the data you need. So we yeah. find a lot of cases when um, clients are using the data they have and not the data they need. So hmm. here we see an obvious problem. So oftentimes we are trying to solve a problem by asking the wrong questions. And then, of course, what we get at the end is not is not a good decision making process. So in this initial step of seeing how a, a problem has been translated into data points and what data um, are we using to train the algorithms, we already identify a lot of a lot of problems, a lot of a lot of issues, basically because teams have chosen to go the easy route of just getting what's available and hmm. not doing a diagnosis of what we of what we need. So that's the first, the 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 very first um, um, step in our in our in our audit. Then we also identify the vulnerable groups. So uh, in this case, based in sociological understandings of a specific society, what are the dynamics of um, discrimination that could be incorporated by the data? And here we identify, for instance, women are always uh, an issue. Non-white uh, people, if there's facial recognition, that's also very very obvious. But there's lots of other layers of discrimination. We, we find sometimes in some algorithms, older people are discriminated against, younger people, um, people from a specific uh, region, from a sp specific um, zip code. So there's a lot of a lot of dynamics of discrimination, and not all of them need to be related to to social discrimination. We can also see that because of um, how the data was collected, some people were not, were, their data didn't make it to the to the final um, decision. So mm. it's, it's about understanding who are the vulnerable groups, but vulnerable not only in terms of, of, of being discriminated against in real life, but also people that may have been forgotten in, in, our, in, our, training, in our training data. And so mm -hmm. here we already have the basis to start the technical part of our audit, which is when we go and we look at what how the algorithm is, is working. And what we do is we test the results of the algorithm against the vulnerable communities that we identify. And we have control groups and non-control groups uh, to see whether the impact that those communities are receiving is similar to their weight in the population. So to make sure that the algorithm is not reproducing any kind of discrimination or not forgetting specific um, specific characteristics that are important in order to make a decision about those about those population so that's the most the most technical part and here we we use tools that are out there like equitas fairness 360 i mean you can use algorithms to audit algorithms but only mm -hmm. in this phase like if you haven't done the initial phase before mm -hmm. there, you run the risk 
of um, getting really bad results. So if you do a technical audit without doing the first phase, mm -hmm. you may have uh, a technical auditor that tells you that an algorithm that discriminates against women when looking for jobs is a perfect algorithm because it perfectly captures the conditions of reality. So if you mm -hmm. haven't done step one, in this step, you may get really bad results because you have not understood the dynamics of the, the bias, the selection bias, and the historical bias that you may be incorporating into mm -hmm. the into the system. Here Sorry, how could you could you repeat how you do the? Not sure if I understood the the testing part. So when just, you identify the vulnerable groups and then you do this test with the control and test. We do different oh, things. So we, we assess what kind of algorithm we're using. We, we assess what the algorithm is optimizing for, um, how it works, whether a, uh -huh. a different kind of algorithm should have been chosen, what kind of decisions it may be making that are not, that may not be sound for the problem that we, that we have. And then we also test the algorithmic results on specific populations. So if we've identified in a, in a hiring algorithm, that women are a vulnerable uh, group because of uh, uh -huh. problems with historical data. Then we see how the algorithm is making decisions on women and we separate that from men. And then we see whether there's this, what we call disparate impact on those two communities. And mm -hmm. if there is, we look for solutions. We may want to incorporate rules. We may want to tamper with the data so that the algorithm doesn't see that women are underrepresented or that women have been accessing lower paying jobs in the past. So we, we can find different ways of addressing and, and, and solving the issue or at least mitigating it. Mm -hmm. um, so here we look at, 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 uh, at lots of different biases comprised in the, in the model and we do statistical tests uh, on okay. impact to identify um, disparate impact. And then the third uh, part of our um, audit, which is also very important, is that we look at how, how the algorithm interacts with people, not not the, not the data of the people that it manages, but the people that use that algorithm. Oftentimes, um, algorithms are mediated by a person. That's not the case in social media or, um, or streaming algorithms, but in lots of other algorithms that have serious impact, like the medical algorithm that does triage in emergency rooms or a, a, an algorithm that assigns risk. Mm -hmm. um, to, to specific uh, populations or a women that uh, decides whether you should get unemployment or not. There's usually a human being that yeah. handles the algorithmic decision. And what yeah. we found is that in this, in this part of the decision-making process, because at the end of the day, the algorithm doesn't make the final decision, mm -hmm. um, there's always a human being, specifically in Europe, because the law requires that there's always a human in the loop. What we found is that even though the law states that by having a human in the loop, you're making the algorithm better and more fair, and you have someone who can control for, um, for discrimination. In our experience, those humans tend to reincorporate human bias into the system. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And so just having a human in the loop doesn't help unless that human has been trained and the humans that interact with technical systems understand how they make decisions and they're empowered to sometimes overwrite that decision or, or implement it directly when they think that it's been that it's a good decision. But we find that unless some someone is training and and um, establishing the mm -hmm. role of the algorithm and the role of the human being, so saying, for instance, seventy five percent is the algorithm, twenty five percent is the human being, so that we can also audit that human uh -huh. in the loop. Uh, mm -hmm. We we find a lot of inefficiency being reintroduced into the system through these humans in the in the loop. So our audit also incorporates that. And finally, we make sure that there's a redress mechanism so that if someone felt that um, 
that an algorithm impacted them in an unfair way or an incorrect way, they have a way to uh, to raise a complaint and they have a right to have mm -hmm. that decision being looked into and, and mm -hmm. for that person to know how that decision was made. Uh, and that's that's a, a redress mechanism that it's that it's that it's legally mandatory. But unfortunately, in many cases, humans don't have the ability to uh, to contest or to or to question algorithmic algorithmic um, solutions or or decisions. So that's mm -hmm. that's why for us it's very important that an, an an algorithmic audit is always end to end. That's the only way to capture whether really at the end the person affected by that decision has had their rights upheld or not. Mm -hmm. Well, it's amazing. Like I'm, I'm a fan of how holistic the the whole process is. So you start with identifying the vulner vulnerable groups based on, I understood academic research and social exactly. sciences, probably also some mm, some research, some mm, probably UI research, UX research. Yes, in, and in, we, in we, also, we also we do interviews. We do interviews with yeah. the teams to understand. So, in the past, did you uh, did you see any inefficiencies or unfair treatment? So mm -hmm. we always collect their experience. Like it, 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 sometimes it depends. Sometimes when the client wants something very quick, we cannot get into the depth yeah. of everything. But we always make sure that we do the three steps. So yeah, yeah. we don't do audits that are only technical or where we only assess one part of the process. For us, it's yeah. very important that it's always end-to-end because -end, otherwise you don't have visibility on, mm. on how the system really works. And we cannot give our seal of approval to something that we haven't really been able to test. Yeah, 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 definitely. No, I, I really like the this holistic view on everything because, like, I mean, I think everyone who works in, in tech and data is confronting this issue very often, especially people who who are fresh coming into the industry, you know, what we tend to fo focus on is like the algorithms, how to make this thing a little better, how to, how to trade into, you know, to have uh, one more percent of accuracy or one less, one less unit of error or whatever, but very little I see that, or at least in my case, it's, I, I'm quite lucky that people think about this a lot, but I've heard a lot, or I see it as well in the industry that Mm, it, there is not so much focus on you know how the system is used who is it used by and even maybe it's a very great thing that you develop but if you don't think about the human that as you say will later use it mm, maybe there is so much positive impact that's missed because someone you know because you didn't implement it in a way that would be friendly for the for the person that person in the loop mm -hmm. and, you know to use this algorithm and also the final user of course I no I like it very very much the holistic view and so one of the things that i'm sure you've, you're asked this question a lot from people that from companies that you consult what happens to the performance of the algorithm how what about the the metrics like does it perform worse with the new new data does it perform no. better and why no no better or no impact Okay. And there's there's an interesting case that was published just this week. LinkedIn um, has in incorporated some fairness mechanisms, um, and they and they and they've been testing it for for some time, and they realized that incorporating fairness uh, metrics did not affect the way that the algorithm works. So uh, in our experience, it's the same. We haven't seen we haven't seen an impact on on how the algorithm works or the accuracy or any other other metric. Hmm. And what we what we find is that the the final decisions, um, the quality of those final decisions is a lot higher. So, interesting. 
Uh, how exactly does it work? Maybe we shouldn't have to go too deep, but I imagine if you see, like you mentioned one of the approaches, I guess, if there is underrepresentation, I guess you can kind of weigh the data in a way, or maybe discard some part of the data of overrepresented group. I'm not sure if there are other creative ways or other, you know, ways that you use in your work. There's, to un there's, to there's lots data. of ways. Usually, usually uh -huh. our, our clients prefer rules just because they're easier to um, to incorporate. Uh, so that's usually how we how we fix things or how we suggest that they fix them. Uh, but you could also incorporate synthetic data, for instance. Uh -huh. um, so that's that would be like an, an, an easy and obvious way of making sure that the algorithm mm. um, has the visibility that you want it that you want it to have. So the, but again, and, and it's not rocket science, right? I mean, we're uh -huh. not talking about really like super high tech solutions. So so there's it's 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 relatively easy to solve all these things. It's just that you cannot solve it unless you have the knowledge on how to solve these these issues. And also, mm -hmm. if you keep thinking that tech, the technical people are very objective, like so, just imagine the team that that um, developed the algorithm for that hospital in the well, a network of hospitals in the U.S. You know, deciding to train a medical algorithm on financial data, that's not a very good decision. Yeah, yeah of course. And that's not mm -hmm. a very objective decision, but but engineers are making those decisions all the time. They're mm -hmm. choosing the data. And when they make that choice, but the things that they're doing it worse than social scientists because they're not using um, uh, scientific evidence to justify mm -hmm. their decision. They're using their gut feeling. <laughs> and that's, that just com that's really ascientific. Um, and we see that all the time uh, when we've been auditing some systems of um, facial and body image recognition for uh, um, for uh, for critical infrastructures. And mm -hmm. what was interesting when we started to to work with this with this team is that basically the engineers had coded normality as themselves. So, for instance, at a bank, the normal non-suspicious behavior was using the bank in a very efficient way. So you know, you go in and out, you do your thing. You leave yeah. as soon as possible. That's how young professional people use a bank. If you're mm -hmm. older, you may spend more time because you have more time. You may sit on a couch because it's comfortable. It doesn't rain inside the bank. So at the end of the day, if you don't have social scientists, what you have is engineers making decisions that they cannot justify scientifically. How is the normal in a bank, uh, um, uh, a, a young professional using that using that space? That's not that's not even the majority of the users mm -hmm. of the of the bank. But of course, if, if they don't have the tools, they end up making really bad decisions and decisions that are based on gut feeling, which is which is not a way of doing science. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. I also imagine that, you know, that additional performance that you say it performs even better probably comes for exactly from what you say. You, you know, you correct for, I guess it's called measurement bias. I don't remember all the names of different mm -hmm. biases that, you know, you choose one, you choose a metric of your interests, okay, maybe it represents what you want to achieve, but then if your data doesn't actually measure what you want to achieve, you know, there is no way how you how the algorithm can, can perform well. Probably, I imagine a lot of it comes from this systemic thinking to on improving the, you know, the input, the output part, especially not only, not only the data, that, yeah, I guess that helps, that helps the, the algorithms do a better job as well. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And, and also, and, and the decisions that they make in the end, you can you can defend them and justify them. With a lot mm -hmm. of systems, you just don't know why why someone is denied a job or a, or a subsidy 
because it's it's a black box system and that's yeah. a, spe- specifically like in the public sector you can't you can't afford to work like this you know people have rights people have a right to know why they've mm. been refused yeah. a specific uh, um, something specific but even in the, even in the in the private sector uh, a couple of years ago um, uh, there was this couple that complained on Twitter because they had both applied for the Apple card and having joint finances, this was a, a couple, they were married and uh-huh. they had joint finances and they and they went online to say that with joint finances, the woman got 10 times less credit than the, than the man. And they were really mm. angry about this. Um, so it's not only the public sector. I think people in the, in the private sector also want to understand how decisions about them are made. And they, wanna, they want some reassurance that those decisions are fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 for sure. And also, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been thinking about, mm, of course, the historical data, the history is biased. I mean, the world will always be, in a way, biased. And I read a study that, you know, the algorithms, if you try, like, you, you might say, okay, if the, if the data is biased, if the world is biased, maybe it's not the, the fault of the algorithm. But what happens in the reality is that oftentimes when, when a model is trained on this data, and then used in, in, in some kind of a system, then that bias increases. So it, it reinforces. I, I think the example that I read was about a women's salary. And so I don't remember exactly how, how less women earn for almost exactly this or exactly the same positions compared to men. But in systems where the algorithms were involved, the, the outputs were even, even more biased in a way. Right, so I exactly. wonder. The system, the system amplifies exactly. discrimination and bias often. But also, I would question this idea that listen, because the world is like this, it's not our job to fix the world. Well, excuse me. Um, <laughs> we live people, in this world. Okay, yeah. there's there's people that kill other people. Uh, would anyone say, oh, you know, there's violent people? What are we going to do about it? We do a lot. We have laws. We have mm-hmm. prisons. We have systems to uh, to to work with the with the with the offenders to cater to the victims. The same with with uh, labor equality, for instance. In a company, you need to justify that you are an, uh, a non-discriminatory um, employer. There's laws around this. So mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but engineers cannot say that because the world is like this, there's nothing they can do. We all are forced to do something to make the, more, the world better through our laws. That's how reality works. So how mm-hmm. can we impose more um, obligations on 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 someone who has a, a a mom and pop's shop on the corner than we put mm-hmm. on on engineers that design algorithms that will impact on millions of people you know the the owner of that shop on the corner has to comply with uh, tax regulation um, non-discrimination regulation um, health and safety and engineers are like oh but no I, I can do whatever I want it's like well no no one does whatever they want because we live in a society and your decisions have impacts on on other people. So hmm. I just don't know when we got to the conclusion that engineers and, and the technical field in general has this special place of non-regulation that we don't give to anyone else. You know, when you when you want to come up with a with a vaccine for COVID, even though the whole world is waiting on that, no one thought, oh, let's keep clinical trials. <laughs> You yeah. know, no one put that on the table. And in tech, people keep saying, oh, you know, all these safety tests, all these ethical um, mm-hmm. auditing, let's forget about this because, you know, it's technology, it's innovation, you cannot hinder the road of innovation. Well, excuse me, in, in vaccination, we knew that unless we had those clinical trials, those things would not be safe for people, mm-hmm. but also people would not trust them. So in the same, but the, 
by the same process by which we understand that food and medicine need to go through some controls to protect people and to build trust with people with with innovation products with tech products that's exactly the same and i don't know when we gave um engineers and the tech sector this privilege to not have to justify how they protect people from their crazy ideas because sometimes they are crazy ideas and very harmful ideas yeah yeah totally i you know what i i wonder if there is a way for those same engineers to kind of reverse the problem i mean so you you basically tweak the data and tweak the systems to make them maybe even more in a way more equal more ethical than the reality actually is right i wonder if there is a way to tweak it even in, in so much <laughs> that you know maybe it's not it doesn't represent the world even today how it is but this is something we would like to have in the future this is like a vision that we we'll want to have for the society do you know what i mean like in a way that yes the, the good uh -huh. thing about what we do is that we document it yeah so whatever decision we make on the algorithm is public when you audit an algorithm you make it public why you made some decisions so if at hmm. some point someone said listen we want an algorithm for um we want positive discrimination of you know people who live in a certain town that's, that's yeah, a rule that you make public and then people can have a discussion about this the uh -huh. problem with current algorithms is that there's decisions being made all the time that we have no visibility on so we cannot hmm. even have a discussion as to whether what you're doing is is desirable for society or good for society so it's it's this it's this lack of transparency that is concerning that again we don't afford to any other economic sector mm -hmm. in the world how come the tech sector um believes that they can be absolutely non-transparent and get away with it when the systems that they are designing are not about streaming uh, services or at uh, um, um, ad tech anymore. You know, algorithms are not only deciding what the next piece of advertising that we'll see in a website. They're deciding hmm. whether we have access to fundamental services of, um, of, 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 of life. Yeah. Um, so of course you need to you need you need to be helped to higher standards. If you wanna if you wanna expand your business into high risk areas, of course you need to you need to justify your decisions and you need to let others come and see what you're doing to give hmm. people reassurance that what you're doing is acceptable and legal. Yeah, yeah. No, I I totally agree. I am fully yeah I totally agree with you. So in terms of like now you've 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 explained very well. Thank you so much for explaining the whole, you know, the methodology that you use. What would be your advice for, you know, for, for those people in tech, for data scientists, for analysts, for machine learning engineers? How, like, what would you advise to them to ensure, to, you know, to make the tech better, to make the tech eth more ethical? Well, it's a, it's a difficult thing. And I don't think that this can be solved by engineers on their own. I think mm -hmm. we need a lot of other things. We need regulation to change. I think we need we need the the incentives of the market to change as well. But I would say for engineers that care about these things, just to, well, first to stop look, looking down on social science <laughs> uh, and stop thinking that what they do is very objective and what social scientists do is not objective at all. I think that if, if they start really thinking about this, they will realize that there's a lot of gray areas uh, in mm -hmm. that, that we are all working with uh, with data that can be contested. 
but that's why we need to justify our, our choices in ways mm -hmm. that are academically um, robust. So give some more credibility to the to the social sciences approach. I think that could that could help. Also read. I mean, there's 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 a lot of really good books out there that talk about this about these issues, podcasts, and there's a lot of and, and we have an amazing ability to to access knowledge from all over the world on these issues. Like get trained and and question your assumptions and the things that you that you do and demand mm -hmm. that test that the tech asks more of itself. Like, you know, mm -hmm. I think that at the end of the day, unethical innovation is very la lazy innovation. For me, what we're seeing right now in tech innovation is is the contrary of innovation. Innovation is about solving hard questions. If you're always going for the easy stuff, mm -hmm. you're not really innovating. So stop being lazy. This is difficult, okay? Mm -hmm. Automating um, processes that have fundamental um, human effects is a complex process. So get together with the right people Create teams that are multidisciplinary and don't think that you on your own can solve a very complex problem because you don't have all the knowledge. Again, you're an mm. electrician. You cannot build a building unless you you team up with others. If you want to keep on being an electrician, that's fine. You can join other people's teams. You'll always be a team member. But if you want to be the one who builds the building, if you want to be the leader, then you need to find all those people and put them in your in your team. That's the only way you'll succeed. We will hmm. only have robust algorithms when we have teams that incorporate the necessary knowledge. And right now we don't. Yeah, that's a great piece of yeah, that's a great piece of advice. I, I'm not sure if it's applicable to like it's, if it's so actionable for yeah, for you know, individual engineers. But I no, I totally agree that we should well, have I, more. I guess for, for individual engineers, I would tell them, listen, there's a lot of people out there that are doing really creative and amazing things with mm -hmm. their technical knowledge. Uh -huh. So if you're a technical person, your only future is not to work for Facebook <laughs> um, or Google. You know, you can do much better than mm -hmm. optimize for profit. You can do much better than build systems so that people click on ads. That is boring. You don't want to die being the person who made sure that more Google clients clicked on ads. <laughs> uh, I think, you want, you know, you want to do better things than that. And luckily, there's a lot of people out there. There's a privacy enhancing technologies community. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of engineers who have taken the challenge and are looking outside of their field, teaming up with others, even with artists and doing amazing things. So your future doesn't have to be to be a boring, a boring, you know, office person in one of these big uh, corporations, because that's at the end yeah. what you what you are. There's a lot more than you can do with your knowledge if you team up with the right people. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally agree. And of course, you know, many times what you hear as a, as a data person that you need a domain knowledge, which is always required if you enter some, as you say, for-profit, if, if you enter industry and some for-profit company, you are required to have the domain knowledge. So what you work with, you need to understand the problem really well. I guess we should have this as well more in, 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 social, in social terms. Not totally. only in terms of how marketing works, but also how, how it influences the, the society and, and so on and so forth. Yes. So thank you so much. I think it has been a very um, a discussion that we touched upon many, many points and very diverse. I thank you a lot for joining me today. Before I let you go, I would like to um, ask you to provide any, any way of contacting you if people want to reach out. If anyone else is looking for a speaker, if anyone else wants to to contract Ethicus Consulting, how can they how can they do it? Sure, they can they can either um, email me at Gemma G E W M A 
at ethicasconsulting.com. Um, but I am quite slow at replying to mails. Uh, you can also use LinkedIn. Um, you can also use Twitter. Um, and if not me, someone from my team will get back to you and we'd be happy to, to help whoever wants to further the field of responsible innovation. As I said, we are a consultancy, but we're also a foundation. And so our, our, our ultimate goal is not to make money, but to change things and to have impact. And, and to protect people in technological processes. So if that's something that people want to do, we have lots of ongoing projects that people can um, tag along and contribute to. Amazing. Sounds, sounds very good. Thank you so much, Gemma, for being here. And yeah, have a great day. Thank you.